and welcome to a new edition of Chapter and Verse, The Art of Selling Children's Books, the podcast brought to you by the bookseller and marketing agency Rocket and presented by me, Charlotte Eyre. Today's guest is Alice Oseman, a full-time writer and illustrator whose first novel, Solitaire, was published by HarperCollins Children's Books in 2014. She has since written several other novels, including Radio Silence and Loveless, as well as two ebook novellas, again, all published by HarperCollins Children's Books. And she created a webcomic, Heartstopper, which was then published in print by Hachette. And it's soon going to be a very exciting show on Netflix. And uh, maybe less excitingly, she was one of our youngest ever speakers, perhaps the youngest ever speaker at the Bookseller Children's Conference a few years ago. Hello, Alice. Hello. Thanks for having me. Do you remember speaking at the children's conference? I do. When you were really young. That was so long ago. I actually hadn't thought about that for many, many years, maybe, until you just mentioned it. (laughs) Well, let's talk about how do you become a writer? Yeah, so I wrote stories all throughout growing up, all throughout my childhood. And they kind of got longer and longer as I got older. And when I was in my teens, I, in my early teens, I wrote a very long fantasy book about Greek myths. It was not very good. (laughs) Um, But after that, um, when I was in the sixth form, I was more interested in contemporary, YA contemporary. And I wrote my very first book, Solitaire. And I didn't think, I, you know, I didn't set out to become published author at the start. But as I kind of got towards the end, I really felt like I wanted to try and see if there was any chance at publication. So um, once I'd finished my draft and done some editing, I looked up how people became authors, found out all about the querying process, the, you know, agents and how that all works. Um, And then that's what I did. I went down the traditional slush pile route, submitted it to agents, was very lucky and found an agent with that book. And uh, that's Claire Wilson. And she helped me sell Solitaire and another book to HarperCollins. And then Solitaire came out when I was 19. Yes, so young. (laughs) What was Solitaire about? And was it directly influenced by your experiences of being a teenager? Yeah, a lot of it was kind of inspired by the world I knew, like the characters in the plot are quite fictional, but kind of the themes and the setting of the story is very much the world that I grew up in. Um, At the time, it, it was kind of like the sort of the, f- the first big boom of YA is how I think of it when I was a teenager. So when I was like 15, 16, I was just getting into John Green and like discovering that whole genre of young adult fiction. And I really wanted to read more of that. But I couldn't find a lot out there that was about like a British all girls grammar school. So I decided to write that. <laughs> I remember when HarperCollins started promoting you and everyone was very excited about the fact that this is a real teen, te- you were a real teenager writing books and a lot of the marketing and the promotional plans were around your age and you were on BBC Breakfast among other things. Did you, how comfortable did you feel in your age being used as a promotional tool? It definitely had pros and cons like it, it's, I can't say straight up I hated it because it brought the book so much publicity and like it gave me a really strong start in publishing which is difficult for debut contemporary YA so yeah it was a really effective um, publicity tactic but at the same time like I, I I often felt like that was really all people cared about it was all they really wanted to talk to me about and sometimes I felt like it kind of undermined what I wanted to talk about like the the themes of the story and what the story was about so that was kind of the downside of it 
Yeah. Okay. So what happens next? So you've done your first book and like you say, you get a lot of publicity and it, it sells pretty well. What would, what did you then go on to do? So you had a two book deal with HarperCollins. Yes. What was the second book about? So second book was Radio Silence, um, another way contemporary standalone. And I, so I, I, it was a two book deal. So I was already commissioned to write that. And I was just, just as Solitaire came out, I was finishing my first year of university. So I was at university at the time and I had to write Radio Silence while I was at university, um, which was a lot more difficult than I anticipated. I found it way, way harder than writing Solitaire because Solitaire I was writing on my own, wasn't for anyone else. It was just a hobby. Um, but Radio Silence, suddenly there was lots of pressure and I, I, I had the classic book two syndrome that everyone talks about. So it was very, very challenging but got there in the end um, and Radio Silence came out two years after Solitaire in what I was in my third year of university that was 2016. And when did you start doing the Heartstopper series? So that I launched the webcomic in September 2016. Mm-hmm. Um, I've been planning it for uh, sort of most of 2016. I've been working on stuff for it. It's been going ever since. <laughs> Can you talk a little bit more about webcomics and why you wanted to do that? I think for a lot of older people in the publishing industry and not even, you know, old, older, older, I mean, not only a few years older yourself, but we don't really know what webcomics are. They might say, why did you put something out for free? Can you just talk me through the rationale behind why you did that? Yeah, it's it's a very niche world, the world of webcomics. I, I feel like I kind of stumbled into it. i um, from being online, being on Tumblr, which had quite a, you know, fandomy sort of user base. And I discovered webcomics. And um, this was, you know, several years before I thought to start Heartstopper. And it was, you know, just people uploading their comics in a serialized way for people to read for free. And yeah, I completely understand why people would look at that and think, well, how do you make money off of that? <laughs> You're just putting your story out for free. But I think it's it's really interesting because what I found getting into webcomics was that while the webcomic was available for free, these creators were still making money through things like Patreon, support people supporting them through online things like that, or through merchandise or through um, selling physical copies. You know, even though people are reading the webcomics online, everyone wants a physical copy that they can hold. So, it, and, and I'd seen that be really successful for many, many webcomic creators. So I felt like that was a, a safe route to go down with Heartstopper. And the two characters, Nick and Charlie, they're two boys at school, teenage boys who fall in love, get together. And they're actually minor characters from your first novel, Solitaire. Yes, they are. Yeah. So in that novel, Solitaire is narrated by Charlie's older sister, Tori. And Charlie uh, and Nick are characters in the book, but they're not they're not in loads of it they're not really big characters but uh, in in solitaire they are in a relationship they're a very loving couple but not much is really revealed about their backstory or how they got together or what they're like kind of outside the scope of the narrator of solitaire and I really love them as characters and I knew as soon as I finished solitaire that I wanted to tell their story somehow and um, just took me a while to figure out how <laughs> So once you've decided on the the webcomic, you gained a lot of fans, a lot of readers very, very quickly, didn't you? Yeah, um, I think, I mean, there was a combination of factors. Firstly, it was the webcomic launch went really well because I had that existing fan base, existing Mm -hmm. readership. 
I had readers who knew me from solitaire and radio silence so I wasn't starting from nothing and people were drawn to reading it because of course it is free content like free mm-hmm. stories and people enjoy that <laughs> so um, it had a good start and then once I had that kind of strong first few months it could just kind of build gradually from there but then Hachette get in touch and they say we really like this we want to do something with it and now that's it's available as a print book in shops as well yes it is (laughs) and there's a new volume coming out this year is that right can you give us some hints about what's going to happen yes volume four is out in may this Mm -hmm. year it's it's focusing on mostly mental health in volume three we learn that charlie has been struggling with some mental health issues but we don't learn much about what those are what that will mean for him in that volume so volume four will explore that and how he deals with that and how Nick supports him in that yeah that's the main theme I've read the book let's talk about eating disorders and how you portray those you are very good at showing things in society that we don't talk about enough are you trying to shine a light on these unexplored areas of life yeah definitely that was my original thought with Charlie at least I mean the Charlie's eating disorder and the kind of plot themes surrounding that in the story originated in solitaire that is kind of one of the strands of solitaire although we don't learn as much about it as we would have if it was from Charlie's perspective so what I've done in Heartstopper is Mm -hmm. tried to show that story directly from his perspective and really get a bit deeper into you know having an eating disorder and his recovery journey as well okay and am I right in saying you're doing a couple of novellas also set in the Heartstopper universe this year? No, I have done, I had two novellas come out last year with HarperCollins and they feature Nick and Charlie. They were actually originally published as e-books back in 2015, I think. Um, And then last year we decided to release them as paperbacks. So it's all about creating a whole world around the Heartstopper series. Yeah, yeah, it's actually really interesting because we wanted to do that because people have been, you know, really loving Heartstopper and we felt like they would enjoy having a physical copy of those stories. So we wanted, you know, HarperCollins and Hachette really wanted to work together and create something that fans of my novels and Heartstopper would really enjoy. Yeah. So um, in these paperbacks, we decided to include illustrations. Right in the Heartstopper style so it feels like you've got a little bit of my prose novels and a little bit of my Heartstopper drawings as well and yeah. Do you know in your head how many volumes there'll be and where you know the story will end for your portrayal of Nick and Charlie? Yes sadly (laughs) there will be an end to Heartstopper. Volume five will be the last volume um, of the main story. I know sad. Um, yeah, I've said this many times, um, but the story will end when Nick goes off to university. Okay. And their kind of school life together comes to an end. So Fair enough. But uh, hopefully it won't be too much of a sad ending. I hope not anyway. No, definitely not sad. (laughs) I wanted to talk about your portrayal of young people who are LGBTQ+, because I know that Nick and Charlie were hugely popular when the books first came out. And I'm also thinking about Loveless, your novel from last year. I think you were ahead of the game in terms of LGBTQ plus diversity in your books. Do you feel like the publishing industry has changed for the better? I definitely think so, yeah. Mm. Having been an author since 2013, 2014, I've really witnessed it kind of 
explode like and grow and people yeah. publishers are more encouraging of more diverse stories and diverse authors yeah it's really wonderful to see and the main character in loveless uh, she's asexual yes and is she aromantic as well or she is, is she yes. is aromantic yeah. as well and again that's not something that we really see in literature how did your readers respond to that story yeah it's it's interesting I had lots of really positive responses from readers who are asexual and or aromantic Mm -hmm. they were really excited to see that portrayal that sort of story in a kind of traditional coming out story is how I think of Loveless and even but even readers who aren't Arrow or Ace they still enjoyed you know reading it and finding out more about it and reading about the other characters as well so yeah I I think readers are very happy to read things that are outside of their own experience. Our next guest on the podcast is Charlie Morris a marketing manager at Macmillan Children's Books. She is also a podcast presenter and someone who is really passionate about promoting LGBTQ plus books and supporting their authors and illustrators. Hi, Charlie. Uh, welcome to the podcast. Can you uh, tell us a little bit about yourself and also your experience in publishing? Yes, uh, I'm Charlie Morris. I'm currently marketing manager at Macmillan Children's Books. Um, I've been there seven weeks, but before that I was working at Little Tiger Books for the past five years, uh, where I was doing publicity and marketing, working on all sorts of books from children's baby board books all the way up to YA. And my career really started as a bookseller. I worked in my local independent bookshop, The Book House in Tame, when I was a teenager and completely fell in love with it, uh, looked after the children's section there. And it's really sparked my, my career and love of books. Now this episode is all about YA of course which you have some really great experience in. Tell us about what makes marketing or or promoting or even publishing a YA book that's different from when you're doing books for younger readers. I think the main thing about YA books and, and young adult fiction is that it has got a real appetite for a kind of community audience to it. So really the, the teen advocates for the book and the kind of blogging community on whichever platform that they are is really thriving and, and has been for kind of many years. Um, so there is lots of really great meaty discussions and keen people who are on the lookout for books that are really representative of their current experience and how they experience the world and how they see and kind of value their peers so there is lots of groundwork there to get them involved in the discussion and and help them be the champions of the books that they love. Oh fantastic can you give us some examples of where you go to find those readers? Yeah, I think at the moment, probably a lot of people are curious about the boom on in TikTok. Uh, BookTok yeah. has become a, a big platform for teens themselves and particularly can be younger demographic of YA readers to champion and discover and recommend books to each other in a kind of peer-to-peer way in doing something creative where they can make something visual. And a lot of that is just appealing to what makes a book vibe with them. I think it's really about kind of the the appeal of a book and the kind of world that it conjures for them. And then beyond that, there's also places like Bookstagram. So on Instagram, YouTube communities with uh, booktubers, on kind of blogging platforms as well, which are holding strong for reviewing content and particularly author interviews where they get to really bring that kind of connection to the creator, to the, to the blogging world. So lots of different avenues there. And I think also in terms of finding 
them on a day-to-day working very closely with schools and libraries within schools to get them directly to the kids who they really are aimed at. So you mentioned there sort of getting that connection with the readers and often with YA we see that that's about personal stories, things that have happened in the character's life that have ma- might have happened in the reader's life. Is that always what you're looking for when you're planning a campaign for a title? Is it that story that can you know make a personal connection or are you thinking about other things as well like maybe point of sale or what you what the editors are saying what the marketing is saying you know really try and break it down for us I think it can really be kind of a rounded overview of all of those different little elements so I think first and foremost you're thinking what is the customer and consumer getting from this book what is the reading experience that they're going to be having with this book so if it's a fantasy you're being transported to a different world uh, what are the characteristics of that world if it's a contemporary what are the relatable aspects that make this book stand out from the crowd what really kind of makes this an individual experience just finding a way to convey that as much as you can to the reader and then also in terms of kind of how is it written what's the kind of way that it's constructed is it something that's really kind of high fantasy in terms of language or is it something that's really accessible and funny just pulling out all of those different elements to really get the message kind of down to its core components now you're really passionate about lgbtq plus stories and um talking about them and championing them and when you are thinking about promoting or marketing a book um with those kind of characters and themes i mean is that different from marketing a book where you don't have any lgbtq plus characters to talk about I think what I've seen in particular is that there is such a huge appetite for characters from LGBTQ communities, um, particularly those that aren't necessarily represented a lot of the time in books. So if you can really let people know that those characters are within the story, they are desperate to receive those books. I think a lot of people have for a long time assumed that it's a niche market but if anything I'd say the opposite is true it's a really voracious market they're so keen to have more representation for themselves and for their peers and I think also the expectations of teenagers these days in terms of LGBTQ content and in terms of seeing people represented in the fiction is has really swapped so obviously quite a lot of us might have grown up under section 28 which meant that we were kind of banned from talking about characters or people who have those experiences whereas teenagers now have not had that law impact their lives other than kind of the way that adults are thinking about it still so for them it's kind of a no-brainer to have communities represented across different representations within the stories Uh, they're seeing it within their own peers um, and they're seeing it themselves so it just gives them what they want so in terms of marketing strategy really just making sure that they're aware of it as much as you can. There's so many opportunities to talk directly with influencers, such as bloggers, such as booktubers, etc., who are searching for these characters to champion. So just letting them know and reaching out to them to say, hey, this book is relevant to the work that you're already doing, can really get that into their radars. And on the flip side, also, I found that teachers and librarians are very keen to make sure that their shelves are representative. So a lot of schools are trying to find what they can give to their students and how they can share that material and how they can kind of highlight it. So to be able to draw their attention to the books and say, hey, this book contains a transgender male who you don't often see within stories maybe this will be relevant to one of your students, is just an extra tool for them to help support their community within the school. 
Yeah, I often think that adults have a lot of catching up to do when it comes to thinking about gender and sexuality Definitely. in the way that teenagers do and even realising or connecting with teenagers and the way they think about those things. But from what you're saying, there are teachers and librarians who are sort of making that bridge in a way. They're kind of helping those teenagers. Yeah, when I worked on the Proud Anthology a couple of years ago now, um, I did a presentation at both YLG, which is the Youth Librarians Group, and SLA and FCBG, which is School Librarians Association and the Federation of Children's Book Groups. Um, and I stood on stage and basically gave my manifesto about why Proud Books mattered to me personally but also why it would matter to teenagers and it was a book that had 12 different stories and poems in it but also 12 different illustrations um, from separate creators so it had loads of different people who were sharing their own experiences in fiction and just to be able to convey that to a group of, kind of captive librarians meant that they were able to take it on to give to their schools and to their libraries as well and it was really interesting I, I made myself a bit emotional on stage just talking about what it would have meant to have me to have seen characters like this in books when I was growing up in school and kind of the feedback that I got after that speech was librarians saying oh that was really moving I've been looking for something like this is there anything even younger so that was one thing that really kind of stood out to me was that they were really looking for those experiences from fiction from middle grade up they they want to be able to give children the chance to see themselves reflected in books from very young age so that they're not feeling othered as they become teenagers and as they go through puberty and for anyone who's listening who hasn't read that anthology give us a brief overview of what it was about and who wrote for it yes yeah, so it was compiled by juno dawson who is an absolutely wonderful writer in her own right and particularly on lgbtq issues and she put together with us um, when i was working at little tiger a group of kind of rising stars of writers within the YA community who had already got books out. So uh, people like Simon James Green, Tanya Byrne, Dean Atter as well wrote a beautiful poem that then got incorporated into his own YA fiction, The Black Flamingo. And then we also wanted each of those stories to be illustrated by an individual illustrator. So there was people like Steve Anthony and David Roberts, Kate Elisada. So each story was written based on the idea of the theme of pride and what pride meant to you in different ways. So not necessarily pride as in a parade, but pride as in feeling proud about who you are in a personal level or kind of those different elements uh, to really take the inspiration through and they could write it in whatever genre they wanted so we had poems we had contemporary stories we had fantasy a, a Chinese lesbian fairy tale which is one of my absolute standouts so the idea was to offer both a launch pad of here are the creators that already exist that you might not be aware of that offer LGBTQ representation within their backlist that you can go and sort out. But also here are some more creators whose stories deserve to be told and who we hope to champion into future careers. Well, you certainly did achieve a lot of that. So <laughs> congratulations. And in those stories, there, there was you could you could read, you know, dripping off the page, the people's, the author's personal experiences. And you as a sort of marketing professional, how often are you looking at the author's personal experiences and using those experiences to tell the book when you are going about your day-to-day -day work? It's a hard line to straddle because I think you don't want to detract from the fact that they're a piece of fiction. It's, it's a whole kind of story that's been made up, but it may also draw from personal experiences. And I think particularly as we move to trying to find an authenticity of experience and make sure that the representation on the page is really as positive as it can be, not that it has to be kind of wholly happy or anything on that, that side, but that it is real and, and resonates with a reader who also is going through those experiences. I think in that terms, having an author who just knows 
what that is like can make a wealth of difference. The key thing that you should be thinking about if you're marketing and publicizing LGBTQ stories is that communication with the creator to find out what their levels of comfort are, what they want to convey. And if they have got personal stories that are related to those elements, kind of where their comfort levels lie, because readers can also glean that from the written text, but the written text can can speak for itself. So if it can stand on its own without kind of that extra background, then absolutely lean into that. But if there is something that the author is really keen to share and wants to expand upon and wants to kind of use that personal anecdote as a way of making somebody else feel understood and feel seen then that is a wonderful thing to have as well in your back pocket. Now you've we've talked about these specific groups of fans and passionate readers that you can reach out to online what do you think about when you're thinking okay but I also want to get this book into the hands of more readers you've mentioned schools and librarians and obviously those are hugely important in what you do but is there anything else that you're thinking about or you're doing to reach as wide a number of people as possible yeah so the other thing that I really did with with the anthology is go directly to the retailer um, to do kind of pre-sale pre-order campaigns and particularly in this case within the LGBTQ community so uh, there's an increase over the last couple of years in wonderful community independent bookshops such as Gaze the Word which is obviously the long-standing bookshop of its time that supports the community but also places like Category Is Books in Glasgow, uh, the Type Leads which has just come up in Leeds, Portal Bookshop in York so we did a pre-order campaign where if you ordered through Gaze the Word and Category Years which were the two that was around at the time you were able to get pin badge for for your order and they helped share it through their networks as well so that increased awareness into the wider book sphere because a lot of booksellers are looking to them to kind of see what they're recommending that they can then pass on to their own customers and that meant that it got wider visibility within those retailers but I think on the flip side of that and another thing that to consider is that straight cis people do also want to read LGBTQ <laughs> characters it you don't have to be from the community to want to read somebody else's experience opening up your mind and I think not just with LGBTQ stories but stories of disability and race and lots of different elements it's we want to have a wider fully coloured internal imaginative world and that's how we can do it and I think it's really interesting what you said about sort of kickstarting with small bookshops and then that will have an impact on bigger bookshops and then on the chains and on Amazons it's something that we know in the industry but we don't really talk about enough so what you did was really clever but also you know shout a big hurrah to the independent bookshops who were really good at championing small books like this and actually getting them going on their journey definitely and I think particularly for books that don't have necessarily a lot of budget if you can find that one champion who is going to absolutely adore it and sing about it and help them do their job and help them really lean into that then other people will pay attention and it can make that kind of snowballing effect to grow a campaign from kind of a show too strong budget to give it that backing and and be able to expand it to to give it a, a leg up into the world for a wider reach of course now before you go let's talk really quickly about your new role which is as a podcast presenter (laughs) tell us about the podcast and the kind of books that you are championing and what you hope to achieve so I've taken over this year um, from the wonderful Catherine Woodfine uh, as one of the co-hosts for Down the Rabbit Hole which is a podcast that's been around for about five years now uh, championing children's books 
um, really kind of looking at what is being published at the moment. And alongside my co-hosts, Sam Sedgman, Hannah Love and Caroline Carpenter, we are looking at books now by theme. So we've kind of rejigged the format a little bit, which had been kind of a wider review platform kind of month by month to really kind of narrow down on a topic. Um, so, for example, this year we have already done kind of modern classics, what makes a classic, uh, what we would add to the canon now going forward that we think has really stood the test of time over the last kind of 20 years. Uh, we did a funny one, which was cats versus dogs with author champions taking each side and really kind of doing a nitty gritty look at what makes a cat book and what makes a dog book and which one's best, which got quite outspoken. <laughs> and then um, I've recently done one, which is again, looking at Pride books. So that was a special theme around the beginning of Pride Month, which is happening obviously kind of through June, July, and really looking at what books are available in the market with author guests. Um, and I, I wanted the focus of that episode to particularly look at the younger side. So picture books and middle grade, uh, which don't get the championing that maybe YA does, particularly looking at L.D. Lipinski's The Strange World Travel Agency, Benjamin Dean's Me, My Dad and the End of the Rainbow, and Jodie Lancet Grant's The Pirate Mums, which is a new picture book, uh, which shows same-sex families really being able to be at the front. So you don't have to necessarily have the main character be the person who's a child kind of investigating their, their sexuality and, and realising who they are, to just show representation of kind of that future, that possible future of you can have a family, this is what that makeup looks like, it doesn't have to look the same as everybody else's in your school can make such a difference. Um, so we really went in depth on there. Um, and going forward, we'll have more themed episodes as well as kind of more fun episodes in between. So hopefully we'll have some interactive ones to get involved with as well. Charlie Morris, thank you very much. Thank you. <laughs> now, Alice, you are very good at talking to your readers and keeping in touch with them. How do you do that? Is it is it on <laughs> is it via social media? Is it at events? How do you talk to your fans? So much of it is on social media. Like mm. I, I attribute a lot of the success that my early novels had to the fact that I was very talkative and open with my readers online at, at mm -hmm. the time, talking to them on Twitter or Tumblr. I've found that it, it has gotten harder nowadays because I just can't really respond to everyone anymore. But I think having that open dialogue in some way, even if it's a small way, is a really helpful thing for authors and helping them feel like real people rather than just a name on the front of a book. <laughs> Do you have a favourite social media platform? Oh, that is tough. You know, right now, I think it's Tumblr. <laughs> even though Tumblr is interesting because it was very hated back in the day. Mm. Um, but nowadays, I find it is just the calmest of all the social medias. That would be nice. <laughs> yeah. That would be very nice. <laughs> well, I think publishing, do you remember about four or five years ago, everyone in publishing thought I need to have a Tumblr. And yeah. they tried to do things on Tumblr, but they don't anymore. This is Not the thing there. with Tumblr. You can't use it to advertise you can't use it to promote anything mm. and that's terrible for people who want to sell things yeah. <laughs> but for people who just want to go on the internet and look at funny screen caps and gifs it's great <laughs> I should check it out definitely I'm finding Twitter a bit much these days it's yeah. all a bit shouty yeah and in terms of keeping in touch with readers who may you know maybe lgbtq plus and particularly may not be out to their friends and family yet is that something that you're quite conscious that you know you may be talking to those young people who need an outlet they need to talk 
Yeah, definitely. I've really felt that at real life events often have lots of young LGBTQ plus teens coming along and kind of talk, want to talk to me about their story or mm. something that's happened to them. And it's really moving to actually interact with the readers and see how your work has affected them and helped them, even if it's in some small way. And also in um, e emails from readers as well, like through my website, um, people want to email and just tell you a little bit about themselves. And that's really, really special. And if you could give any tips to publishers or authors who want to reach out to those young people, what would you say? I think... Hmm. <laughs> it's tricky because it, it, it you want it to feel natural don't you like you want yeah. I think that's the thing you if you want to have that dialogue with readers you have to have a certain openness and realness online like you can't okay. be trying to sell your books 24 7 readers want to see a little bit of the real you as well and that's what makes them want to share those things with you definitely and are sort of working with librarians and teachers important in that respect as well yeah, I think so. Um, when when I when Heartstopper, I don't think I've mentioned this earlier, but when Heartstopper, um, when I did the Kickstarter for the self-published version of Heartstopper. Oh, hang on. Yeah, I don't think yes. we talked about that. <laughs> so we went straight from webcomic to we Hachette, we but there was a Kickstarter <laughs> in the middle. Yes. So that was yeah. really interesting. Yeah. Explain how that worked. This was in 2018. I decided that I wanted Heartstopper to be a book. I wanted a physical book to be available I kind of talked to my agent about it and she was like well it's not really a market for YA contemporary graphic novels in the UK and I that was kind of what I expected so I was mm. like ah, that's fine I kind of understand that so instead I decided to do what most webcomic creators do which is do a kickstarter and raise the money and self-publish a print run of copies of the comic in physical form so I did that in the middle of 2018 and it did so much better than expected. Um, and I ended up getting to print 2000 copies of the book um, and sending them all around the world. And what made me think of that going back to teachers and libraries was that when I did that, I set aside 100 copies of the self-published edition to send out to libraries around the country. Mm -hmm. And I, I think that has done so much because I get so many messages from librarians and students who say, oh, I found Heartstopper in my school library and I really really you know I, I sit and read it with my friends at lunchtime and that means so much to me because that takes me back to being at school and like sitting mm. in the library and reading comics and yeah that's really special. Oh that's so lovely isn't it? Mm. <laughs> I'd like to talk a little bit about future plans as well so you've got the new Heartstopper coming out yes. and are there any more novels that you can tell me about? I don't have any plans for new novels at the moment. I am actually taking a little bit of a break um, from, from writing prose because I've kind of been writing prose nonstop since I was like 17. Okay. And I feel like I need to just, just not <laughs> for a few months at least. But of course there's Netflix. Indeed. Which is super exciting. Yes. So tell me about how Netflix got in touch with you and said we would like to work on Heartstopper. Yeah, so it's kind of been a two-year journey. So about two years ago, I met up with a production company called Seesaw Films who wanted to option Heartstopper. For those who don't know what option is, that's just when a production company buys the rights to adapt your work doesn't necessarily mean they're actually going to make it it just means that they now have the exclusive right 
to do that if they want to. So do they give you some money? Yes. And at that point, did you think, oh, they'll probably just sit on it and nothing will happen? Or were you quite hopeful? I was hopeful because in the first meeting, it was them kind of pitching to me and they seemed so enthusiastic, like we want to make this, we're going to develop this. So that kind of gave me the confidence to go with them because I, I really felt like they would actually try and do something with it. And they did. So that year I worked with them very closely to adapt Heartstopper into a TV show. And what that entailed was kind of just coming up with the concept of the show and what we wanted it to look like as a kind of pitch. Um, and we also decided that I would write the first three episodes. And so I did that. And then when we had all that together, we, then we pitched it to Netflix. And that's when Netflix were like, yes, we like it. <laughs> so this was kind of early 2020. And then all throughout that year was more writing, more developing, more just trying to please <laughs> Netflix. And is it going to be a drama? Yes. With actors? It is, yeah, live oh, action. Live action. <laughs> yeah. That's so exciting though, congratulations. Thank you. Now I just have a few um, quick fire round questions that we ask all our guests. And my first one would be, who in the children's book world do you really admire and why? For this, I'm going to say my publicist at Hatchet, which is Emily Thomas. And she is just like, I think having a really excellent publicist is truly one of the best things that you can have as an author, especially around a release date when there's so many requests flying in, events, things to organise. I, I mean, I might just be speaking for me, but I get very easily overwhelmed by like too many emails and things going on. And having just someone on your team to like sort everything out and be like, right, today you're doing this and this and this. It's very, very valuable. So I'm going to say Emily Thomas because she is excellent. <laughs> she is excellent. And do you know what? I think publicists are brilliant at and that's, you know, sort of this whole massive pivot that they've had to do during COVID-19 and lockdown and just yeah. very calmly, very smoothly changed everything, taken everything online. It's been fantastic to see. Yes. Yeah. Uh, what is the best thing about making and selling children's books in the UK? I think it's the community. I just think UK way and children's books have just such a lovely, welcoming community of people, which I'm not sure, you know, comparing to the US, which is so big and there's so many people, I don't know if they have that same kind of insular family-like vibe that the UK Children's Away world does. Are you published in the US? Yes, I am. And have you been there to sort of market and sell your books? I haven't. I actually was going to go in 2020. <laughs> oh, maybe one day. <laughs> well, maybe one day. Well, my next question was going to be, what are you most looking forward to in 2021? So we'll say a tour of the US, perhaps. And... Yes, maybe. <laughs> Um, but I have to say the Netflix show. Yes. Um, and I'm very excited to see that all happen. I can't wait. Yes, me too. It's going to be brilliant. Anyway, Alice, thank you so much. It's been really thank lovely you. to talk to you today. Um, and thank you to everyone else who's tuned in to listen. This is Chapter and Verse, The Art of Selling Children's Books, created by Rocket and the Bookseller. Don't forget to follow us on social media. I'm Charlotte L. Air on Twitter. And we look forward to welcoming you next time. <laughs>